0: Hey, everyone, before we hop into this next episode with Eric Hewson from Same Here Global, please check out drinkhoist.com. Use the promo code ONESREADY for a discount. Um, They've got, you know, ready-to-drink bottles in a bottle. They've got ready-to-drink in a pouch. And they even have uh, little packets of powder uh, for if you're on the go, if you want to really stack yourself when you're traveling or you're out on a ruck or something like that and you need to hammer something back. So check those folks out. They're a phenomenal team. IV-level hydration, great flavors, great taste. Um, love carrying that stuff around with me. So drinkhoist.com, promo code ones ready, And then go check out Um You actually have two choices with them. You can check out, you can go to attackalete.com and then enter the promo code OR10 for a discount. Or even better is go to onesready.com and while you're perusing all of ATAC Elite stuff on, on our site that the discount code is already built in, you don't even need to enter it at the end, you just put, you can shop there and then while you're there you can pick yourself up a flag, a shirt, or whatever you like um, off of what we're offering. So that helps us out as well. So again, attacklead.com promo code OR10 or you can hit us up at com, and then you don't even have to waste time. Put in a promo code. It's all there for you. So, um, now onto the episode, Eric Houston, same here global. Uh, you can find them at same here global.org. Uh, it is all based on mental health. And if you hang on to the end, you'll see I get a little ash chewing. I, I, I catch myself slipping a little bit. So, um, it's pretty funny. And, and Aaron, and Eric are able to set me straight. Um, But it's definitely a good conversation and and one that we'll probably have Eric on again to talk about because it's an important topic and it is more than you can possibly handle in one hour. So on to the episode. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the One's Ready podcast. You're in the team room with Aaron and we have Eric Cuson from Same Here Global. Make sure I make Make sure I get that right. Uh, I got the name right. So proud working, on, working on other, yes, other vocabulary words. So, so appreciate you. you joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, we're off to a great start when the name is is correct again. So it's yeah. a rarity. So.
0: <laughs> well, you know, it's who knows whether I'm going to get it right or whether Aaron's going to get it right. Uh, I leave the really, really complicated ones to Aaron because I'm, I know <laughs> he's just going to nail them. But sure. uh, no, appreciate you joining us. Um, So we kind of, I know we haven't like actually met in person, but we've shared some emails and I kind of got your, your name and I got same here global from, cause you're coming out to Nellis uh, here in August, I believe uh, to kind of talk to a bunch of airmen on base about mental health and all that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to like, in a time that is, it is very, you know, um, in the forefront of everybody's mind, uh, definitely thought it would it would be important to bring you on and, and talk about that kind of stuff. But before we kind of get into that, I just want to go kind of touch on your background and see see where you're from and and how you kind of have gotten to this point in your life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting because coming and talking about mental health and talking about mental health, the military specifically, I have zero background in mental health up until a certain point in my life most of my career, in fact, and then wasn't involved in anything related to military uh, other than having family members who served. So I myself was not in the service. Uh, I was born in New York, a town called Merrick, just outside of New York City, so on the south shore of Long Island, Uh, middle class household, middle of three boys, sports crazed family, and so I, uh, my my life was about you know accomplishments, right? That was, you know, what are you what are you going to do next? What next award are you going to win? What scholar athlete you know uh, award are you going after? What student council role are you getting? Are you in the band at the same time doing multiple activities uh, concurrently? Uh, had a father who was a principal, mother who was a language teacher, right? So that'll play in a little bit later into the story, and so. Um, they kind of let us do our own thing, but at the same time, you know, you're watching them uh, and their roles in school. So so part of uh, earning acknowledgement is, is accomplishments. And so I uh, played every sport I could imagine growing up formally and in, in school. I played four, actually, so soccer and football the same season, uh, basketball and then lacrosse. And then, uh, you know, outside of that ice hockey, uh, baseball, everything you could imagine. So six, four, you know, ended up being, you know, well over 200 pounds. So had the size to be able to play. And so that was my passion, right? Like sure, a lot of people, especially military can relate to it is, is you get the size and, and you're a competitive person. So having a chance to, you know, rough it up with some folks is a, is a fun way to get, (laughs) get some energy out there. Uh, End up going to Cornell University, join a fraternity, walk onto the basketball team, uh, study abroad in London first semester. Uh, so wonderful experience up in Ithaca, New York. And I had done internships in professional sports throughout college, knowing that I wanted to work in professional sports. So I'd worked for international management group for the New York Jets when I was abroad in London for the London Towers, which is a British basketball team. And so it allowed me an opportunity, albeit it was friggin' eight months of interviews at a time when everyone else was just getting jobs in finance. And it was much easier because it was 2001 and the, and the, the, you know, the economy was going well. Um, my parents thought I was out of my mind, that I was only applying to places like NBA, NFL, NHL, uh, NFL, and so I get an opportunity to go work for the NBA league office. And David Stern was a commissioner. My first boss was a guy named Mark Tatum, who's now the deputy commissioner of the NBA. Uh, first person of color who's in a major position like that. So it's pretty awesome to see uh, where he's risen. And my job at the time was to work for uh, a department called Team Marketing and Business Operations, and so they were mostly responsible for being the marketing think tank for the 30 NBA teams focused on ticket sales and sponsorship sales and in doing that they needed someone who was going to go and talk to the players about what they call the business of basketball. So I'm 6'4. I I don't speak like I guess, you know, your typical corporate boardroom guy. I can I can explain things in a simplistic way that, 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 the guys understood. And I guess could look somewhat, I, I, I to them a little bit, a little bit higher than I was. Right. The reason I didn't go play anywhere after college is because I'm only six, four and not six, eight. Yeah. You're Um,
2: a, you're a undersized two guard, my friend, like other than point guards, like
1: you joking, but like in college, you know, walking on, you, in high school, you play like a four position when you're 6'4, right? Right. And then you go yeah. to a D1 school, albeit lower D1 at the time. You're looking at these guys and they're giants, and, and, and you're having to learn how to go guard people out in the perimeter. <laughs> right. right. Different level of conditioning, different, different, different uh, spot. You got to learn how to shoot more and run around the, outside the paint, not just lean on someone to play defense.
2: Right. Um, I, I would be remiss if I don't mention that you went to Cornell. Everybody knows. Andy Bernard from the office also yeah, went to yeah, Cornell. Yeah. That is as soon as you said Cornell, I was like, you, you telling me you went to Andy Bernard school. That's in the Ivy leagues, baby. Like I had all these inside jokes ready to go, but
1: I just want to well, bring that he, up. So I just want to put it out there. That That's one way there. look, you know, I'm, I'm assuming with a lot of the folks in the military, there's leans, there's political leans, right? I, 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 Cornell to me, Certain Ivy League schools, and I don't know how loudly I should say this. Um, (laughs) I think they're a little bit loud in the way in which they have opinions and the way they go about, you know, um, schooling kids. I don't know. It was the same way back when I went. Um, so sometimes I like mentioning that just because I don't want people to think like this hoity toityness of like, you know, the way that we prepare people for this world. Like, you know, I, I, I was a fraternity guy who love getting the shit kicked out of me pledging and then repeating the same, albeit within rules, um, and, and, not going too overboard. Uh, when I, when I was a brother and so I had amazing time at Cornell, like you are landlocked cause you're four hours away from New York city and your friends, you know, you, be, you become best friends with these guys because there's nothing to do, but hang out with them and go to bars and, have a great time. <laughs> and, you know, you, the, the, stress of, of going to classes, this is what breaks it up. Right. So, so call me a meathead, I guess, if you will, from, from, uh, from my college days, but I guess the balance of the meatheadedness with the ability to, you know, to, to know that there was a career path that I wanted to go on. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, so back to the NBA thing, the, the, there was a need in team marketing business operations to be able to focus on the way in which players understood how revenues were generated. And that was because these players thought understandably. So if you think about it, soccer is kind of like this, the players that were coming out at the time that I was working there, it was Kobe Bryant high school, Kevin Garnett, high school, Mari Stoudemire high school, right? There wasn't a the one and done rule. So these guys were all uh, thinking These billionaire owners think that I'm worth a certain amount of money and they give me millions of their billions, whatever they think I'm worth. And we had to explain how ticket sales, sponsorship sales, arena revenues, TV rights contributed to the overall revenue pot, which then ultimately a percentage of that revenue pot that they call basketball related income was their salary cap. Okay, well, if that's how it works, let me spend more time with the season ticket holders. Let me go in the suites after the games and send, spend more time with the with the corporate partners. If that pot grows, my percentage then—well, not my percentage, but my slice of that pie grows—and now all of a sudden, I am making more money. And when you see what these guys are making now, you know the average salary when I was doing that was three point five million. It's now nine point five million, and some of the the, the high end guys are you know making fifty, sixty million a year, right? So. That was the entry point. I'll, I'll give a quick then after that. I think that, that first story was important, but went out to Chicago to help start a WNBA team. It was the, the unique opportunity because it was the first WNBA team that was independently owned outside of an NBA franchise. So instead of an NBA franchise kind of gifting, you know, a fan base in an arena, the, the sky were, were going to do it on their own. So I did that for two years. Then went out to Phoenix. I mentioned Amari Stoudemire earlier. So actually I'm wearing my PHX shirt. Um, so, uh, Mari, Steve Nash, what they called seven seconds or less sons, right? Up and down the court flying, uh, Steve, Steve Kerr, who's now the coach of the Golden State Warriors was, was our general manager at the time. So was their group sales director, uh, for three years, came back to the East coast, VP of sales and service for the New Jersey devils. And then, uh, got hired after four years down in Florida for the Panthers, the team that just made it to the Stanley cup final. Uh, by the ownership group that had just purchased the team then, uh, a guy named Vinnie Viola, military background, West Point grad, team president that I got hired along with, Matt Caldwell, West Point grad. Uh, and I was in heaven. You're you're in South Beach, 34, 35 years old, making more money I've ever made before in my life, no state income tax. And then, unfortunately, six months into my tenure there, my brain just frigging gives out of me. So there's there's some background with, with hopefully when we talk about build up climax and then maybe some cliffhanger to it that uh, that at least gets you to where uh, the, the mental health part of the story starts. Well, yeah, it's no, always laying building
2: yeah. blocks when we talk about mental health, like good, bad, like when you're talking about building, you know, wh- whether it be tools or trauma, right? Like we always talk about how those how those you know building blocks kind of lay. Uh, lay themselves out. So as we go back to your, you know, you said a, a lot of things about your initial, you know, sports and, and, you know, how you interact with your family and where you live with, Um, you know, those sort of things. And you you said something really important that, you know, acknowledgement for you equals achievement, right? You talked about your, it it must not be easy. It's never easy growing up kind of in, I was the the oldest of six, right? So, you know, we felt a little bit different in the, in the where were we, you were more of a middle child than obviously I was because I was the beginning, but man, it was the same thing for us, you know, how, how many sports and, you know, you kind of got to stand out in our family, you know, growing up Irish Roman Catholic and the oldest of six, four of us boys, it was like, well, Who's the fastest? Who's the strongest? And in my case, you know, who's the loudest? Uh, it really gets the most attention. So um, how, how did those as, as we go all the way back to that, um, you know, and as, as we go, you know, fast forward through all of your things like you did have all those accomplishments. But did you feel like that was a direct connection to as you were growing up, you had that need for acknowledgement you know, through achievement?
1: So what's fascinating about how I typically tell the story, because obviously I have to come to Nellis when I say have, you know, I'm excited to come to Nellis. Um, and it's a story I tell in K through 12s when we start with pre-K through third graders. And then when I go to CEOs and we talk with organizations like JP Morgan Chase and United Rentals, right? I say that because Aaron, I didn't know at this point, At 35 years old, what you just acknowledged, the building blocks and this thing called trauma had anything to do with why my brain was failing me. So I've left a lot of the details of my childhood out. I'm happy to start with them if you want me to answer (laughs) them that way. But the reason I leave them out is because the acknowledgement at the time when I'm 35 is I've got a chemical imbalance and I need chemicals to balance out my imbalance. That's all I'm understanding at this point. Keep in mind, this is 2015. So we're having a conversation sure. eight years later in 2023. You guys use a show. You, you 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 have a show where you speak to members of the military and folks who are connected to it. The concept of trauma has been more normalized. In 2015, working in professional sports, this is well before the Kevin Love, which by the way, even when he shared, he shared it through the lens of a label. Anxiety, a mental illness, a chemical imbalance. Okay. Michael Phelps, depression, a chemical imbalance on the DSM five. Even in 2017, two hours later, two hours later, two years later, it was still not being discussed in this way. So. I can, I'll certainly get to that, but it, it, you, you, you nailed that accomplishments were covering for something, right? But I didn't know it because when you're a little kid and you're getting patted on the back because you're winning the next trophy or you're getting the MVP award or you have the highest batting average, you just think, Oh, this feels good. This is a dopamine hit. You don't know what a dopamine hit is, but you're like, keep me, keep giving me more of this. This is my drug of choice, right? Um, so there were things that happened again, a little bit of a, of a tease there, uh, that, that likely led to my addiction being an addiction of achievement, an addiction of workaholism that kept my brain focused on things that would numb emotional pain that I was feeling. But I didn't know that because as you hear the story play out, the stuff, let's call it stuff that happened to me that often doesn't get discussed when we hear public figures talk about anxiety and depression because those buzz terms get them endorsement deals and they don't have to go any deeper than that. That stuff happened to me starting at such a young age that I only knew one life. And that was mm-hmm. a life that, contri- that, that had contributions related to that bucket of stuff. And so I'm not comparing it going, well, I felt fine during this period of my life. And then all of a sudden, this came in and now I wasn't feeling that way. So this was, this was what I knew as a person. There's challenges. You overcome the challenges and you do things. And when you do things, you feel good. Is that helpful in ter- terms of? It,
2: yeah. <laughs> no, it, it totally is. And, and we'll just, you know, keep going with your story. So, you know, 2015, you have this severe, significant event. What was that like?
1: Yeah, for sure. And please jump in because if I, you know, I, I, I like sharing details. So, so you could, you could stop me at any point and, and dive deeper. And I think details are important in this space. Obviously, I've been facetious a little bit about how stories have been shared publicly because I don't think we're getting to the core that we need to. The understanding, I can tell you from traveling around, our society does not understand this concept of trauma, right? Mm-hmm. So um I'm driving into work each day and coming in the office, I've got this pit in my stomach. And about over a two-week span, it was, you know, waking up feeling like I was in quicksand. It was walking over to the closet feeling like I had cinder blocks on my feet. No energy to go to the gym after work. No desire to go out with friends to, to, to get food and drinks or what have you. But, and this is a lot of people in the military from now working with the military can relate to this. My job, I was able to perform at. So it didn't matter that these other things were failing me didn't matter that I was losing interest in my sports teams on TV. I could get my work done, and I can get my work done at a high level, right? So that accomplishment thing was my anchor that was keeping me grounded. Until eventually one day I had to give a speech at, uh, at, at the suite. Uh, in between the first and second period, we were playing Buffalo, I'll never forget. And so 50 people invited into the suite. My brain was so blank, I wrote down on a sheet of paper, Hi, my name is Eric Houston. I'm the chief revenue officer with the Florida Panthers, so that I had something to go off of. And I read that in front of the 50 people, and my mind just went blank. I don't think I've ever quit anything before in my life, but it was like a light went out. My brain just went dark. And I remember saying, I mentioned Vinny and Matt's names earlier, said, this is Matt, our team president. He's going to take it from here. And I just walked out of the suite. Instinctively, like a reflex, not a choice. Okay, just, just I've got nothing left, and I went back to my suite, to my, to my office. Vinny and and Mac came came to me after the game that night. I was just staring off into the distance, trying to figure out what the hell was going on with me. And Vinny says to me, you know, I could tell something's up. What well, we love, what's been getting built here for the last six months, so we're here to support you which was not common back in 2015 to get that type of support on a corporate level. Obviously, him having a military background, which is why part of why I love working with military, he says to me, looks me in the eyes, and and you guys will appreciate this, he says, we never leave a soldier out in the battlefield. Take as much time as you need, one month, two months, three months, whatever you're feeling, you're going to come back hitting the ground running. And when I heard three months at the end, the cap, right, of the of the three that he ran off, I don't know that he had that number picked out in particular, but that's what I heard. So my thought is, I'm sick. I don't know what the hell is wrong with me. Back to your points earlier, Aaron, about what happened to me as a child. I don't know at this point, do I have a brain tumor? Did I have a traumatic brain injury from playing sports that was just now manifesting? As weird as this sounds, is there an aneurysm or a blood clot running through my brain that's I was so dysfunctional. I couldn't look at a computer and read sentences on a, on a screen and have them sink in. I, I couldn't call people up uh, with a menu uh, in front of me and order food. Like that's how dysfunctional my brain was. And, uh, and hearing three months, what, what do we go to? We go to what we know. So I'm thinking I've watched commercials on TV. It's if it's this mental health thing, you take these chemicals, right? These, you see it. You see a sad face with a gray cloud above it. Now, important for everyone to know, because because we talk about how different people are impacted about mental health. I did not feel sad once this whole time. I felt numb, exhausted, uh, out of it, glazed over, but not sad. So a little bit of a different than the depiction that we typically see, but but it felt like there was some mental health aspect to it. And then in those commercials, you see a pill introduced fifteen seconds into the thirty-second commercial, and then all of a sudden, the person smiling, the gray clouds have gone away, the sky is blue, the sun is shining, the birds are chirping, and you're, and you're good. Life so, is better
2: by the end of the commercial break. Yeah.
1: Yes, and 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 think about this for a second. For everyone who hasn't tried medication on the mental health side of things and and thought about whether mental health is is cured and treated by medication specifically when we all grow up as little kids i don't care where in the country you are in the u.s your parents take you to your primary care doctor or what they call the practitioner general practitioner or pediatrician or family doctor or whatever and they give you this bubblegum tasting medicine before you're ever able to swallow a pill and the things that you have are labels you have strep throat aaron Jared, you have a, uh, bronchitis. You've got pneumonia. And then they go, based on you having this, here's the drug, penicillin, amoxicillin, leviquin, when you have a uh sinus infection. And what happens? We take it for 10 days, two days into those 10 days after our parents say to us, sleep it off, sweat it off, get the fever out of you, and you're going to feel better. And two days later, you're back in school. So we're indoctrinated into this idea. Right, I'm not gonna get into conspiracy theories here, right? But whatever <laughs> you want to You're in safe talk space, about,
2: baby. Let me tell yeah, okay, you, Eric. Well, hey, all right.
1: we go deep so, here, homeboy. You're talking to the right guy. Good. Okay. So so listen, I mean, the way that medications are sold in this country, we are taught a certain process early on, right? So it just makes sense then that what do you feel when you have strep, pneumonia, uh um sinus infection? You feel lethargic, run down, exhausted, you have to sleep, and then it kicks in and you feel better. So why wouldn't we think when our brain doesn't feel right, even though it's a different sensation in terms of how we cognitively process things, why wouldn't we think, well, the medication is what makes me get better, right? Because <laughs> I'm also lethargic. I'm also run down. I also don't have any you know, uh, ability to, to run a marathon right now. I got to take the pill that's going to get me better. So I went back to New York and again, stop me at any point. I went back to New York. I'm, I, I, here I'll make fun of Ivy League, right? I I go to the top doctors, Columbia, Harvard, you know, Cornell doctors thinking I'm seeing the top practitioners in the world. They have their top doctor plaques all over the walls. And this is what said to me after, after my first appointment. I feel this and, and it's ridiculous how you fill out the forms you circle from a one to a five how accurate is this statement i don't love i don't like waking up in the morning i don't have any interest for you know any any aspect of life right i'm i'm paraphrasing here so the guy here's the funny part about it like we all grew up in the era where like scantrons were run through when you <laughs> filled out the bubbles with uh with with pencils this oh, guy didn't yes. even have that right like <laughs> you're, you're spending money on a friggin' appointment for 45 minutes or whatever, however much time he's given you. And he's spending 15 minutes of it manually adding up your, your circled numbers on a sheet of paper. And he just looks up at me and goes, Eric, you have a shitload of anxiety on top of a shitload of depression. You need heavy artillery for it to be knocked out of your system. And what is heavy artillery in his mind? It's a lot of medications. And I left that appointment. With five different prescriptions. Okay. An SSRI, a booster to the SSRI. People know it as Abilify or Exulty. Those are usually the two that are used. An off-label drug, a drug called Seroquil, um, that is, is used with schizophrenics, but it's supposed to really calm the nervous system down. And then a benzodiazepine in the form of Xanax. So I go from taking none at this point to taking five and, you know, talk about being out of it the next morning when i wake up he, here becomes the process okay so so now imagine i'm living in my twin bed at my size at my parents house because i left everything down in florida i don't take for granted that i'm lucky compared to some other folks that my parents had their house still and were willing to take me in and weren't going to charge me rent and i could leave my stuff down in florida don't get me wrong i had some savings saved up because i knew medical bills were coming but i didn't know how long This was going to take two and a half years of absolute dysfunction. I was laying in a bed, staring at the ceiling, not watching TV, not listening to podcasts, barely answering my friend's text messages. My mom kept me alive, right? It sounds embarrassing to say it at 35 years old, but I had no interest to eat and no reminder coming to my brain that I was hungry. So she would make meals like you are having oatmeal in the morning you're having you know even a slice of toast in the afternoon and then you're having soup at night that was that was what i knew from eating and and she'd make sure she'd, she'd sit and make sure i would finish it and for people you know you guys i'm sure talk to people all the time who go through shit like this now granted this was a severe level of it and we'll talk about what those levels mean but i uh you know i i i did i wasn't functioning right? Like I, I was, I was that low and that down into a place that you might think I was lazy and I was laying around. I'm a stubborn SOB who's competitive, who wanted that three month period to get back into work. It was not for lack of desire. It was lack of ability. Like I just, I was done. Like I was toast. And so these doctors are telling me, you know, as each new appointment during that two and a half years comes around, I'm sure a lot of folks who go see doctors can relate to this. And I'm not damning all doctors for to make a PSA right there. But in, in my case, it was many of them. Each doctor had a different area of specialty, right? So so for for three-month period, I'd try one doctor with a bunch of meds. Then I'd go to another doctor. And that doctor was a specialist in OCD. Well, guess what? Find me a fucking person on the planet. Excuse my language. Am I allowed to curse or no? Oh yeah, sure, Sure, go for it. Yeah, find me a fucking person on the planet who doesn't have obsessive tendencies, who doesn't walk down a sidewalk and sometimes go, I need to touch every single crack when I walk down the sidewalk. Okay. Yeah. Or who doesn't walk on the wall and go, I need to touch, you know, each area of the wall as I'm going through. So my point there is, is these buckets that they put you in. And and in my case, it was melancholic depression, anadonic depression, PTSD, OCD, ADHD. Jeez. Wh- whatever the specialist is and what they've studied or where they have a focus and attention and even I would say a passion, they're going to find something fucked up in your brain from your thought processes that fit what they work on. And I heard so many times, Eric, you've got all these other symptoms, but your grade A issue is OCD, right? And then it would switch. So- the, the the racket here is there's drugs that they claim target specific labels. And so as a stubborn person who had the means to be able to spend because I had the savings, I was the perfect customer for that model.
2: Got to get you into a label, baby. I, I, got, I label. got your fix. Yeah.
1: I got your fix. And if it's a new label the next time, okay, it's a new label. And you're going to have to adjust. And here's the four to six week period of adjustment. So even though you feel like shit during those four to six weeks, don't worry, wait for it because at the four week mark, we'll better be able to judge whether or not this kicked in and worked for you. The hell with that, you might kill yourself because you're having awful suicidal ideations and the world feels like a just an awful place to you, like it's hell. But at the four week period, we'll better be able to evaluate and then we'll change if we need to, right? Right. And again, it, I, as you guys are shaking your heads, you know, you, you hear these stories all the time. So it's not new to you. Right. But it's, it's, it's so now being in the space, it's, it breaks my heart of, of that is the model, right? That is yeah. the most common model that, that exists. Okay. So now a doctor tells me you've tried everything, you know, that, that, that's out there. You got to try something outside of drugs. Let's by the way, 50 different combinations. So. SSRIs, SNRIs, MAOIs, and tricyclics, okay? And I'm skipping for the purposes of storytelling. Let's
0: say, I don't even oh. know half of those things that you just said. Okay, yeah, like, me either either, I'm supposed selective to.
1: selective <laughs> serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Yeah, yeah. i to say. work on serotonin, SNRIs, okay, yeah, the, the norepinephrine, ones- and then MAOIs and tricyclics are old-school antidepressants before the SSRIs came out. Here's the fucked-up thing about SSRIs. I'm going to pull... The, 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 the curtain away for everyone to know. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So even in a model where they claim you don't have enough serotonin in your brain, when you take the Paxils and the Lexapro's and the Prozac's of the world, you're not putting serotonin in your brain. It's not synthetic serotonin. You're putting in something that blocks the reabsorption of the existing serotonin, which you may have a very small amount that you're naturally making, that your neurons need to be able to fire from your presynaptic neuron to your postsynaptic neuron so that you have a thought or a feeling they free float in those synaptic areas waiting for the presynaptic to shoot it to the postsynaptic. Well, if you already have a low amount of it blocking the reabsorption so that there's still more free floating, if you don't have that much free floating in the first place, it's not going to fucking do that much for you. (laughs) Okay. So, so, that's that's why it's called an ssri right and 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 you know it's not synthetic serotonin where they're like you have an imbalance jared and we need to give you more of it so we're going to pump it into your brain that's not how it comes in the chemical form so not surprisingly I, I i didn't know this at the time right you just think okay that that's the chemical i need more of so sure give me that medication so so something that i'm sure many in the military are familiar with i'm told to do tms therapy now, now, as I share this, TMS is cr- transcranial magnetic stimulation. I don't want to damn it for people that it's working for or that it may work for. I think different things work for different people. In my case, if you're all familiar at all with it, they put this half moon shaped coil above your head and they put a, a cloth uh, um, cap on your head and they mark the cap on a certain area to hit this thing called a motor threshold. So that your your thumb jumps to make sure that they're hitting the right spot. And they're shooting electromagnetic waves into your brain, kind of like what comes in the form of uh, through an MRI machine, hoping that it's waking up areas of your brain that were dormant before, right? And so that sounds logical to me. So sure, sign me up for it. I'll try it. It's something different than, you know, taking all these meds. So I do that. I'm um, 23 sessions in 23 days in a row, $350 a session, not covered by insurance. Okay. And I, I, I remember the trips back and forth and having these ideations of thinking of throwing myself in front of a train. I hope I'm not triggering anyone by saying this, but I had to take a train to get there thinking about going in between the train cars and jumping out between the train cars. Like those are what ideations are. We'll, I'm sure we'll have conversations when I'm done telling the long story Where do the ideations come from and what are they? Um, So I'm at my house now the morning of the 24th. It's four in the morning. I haven't slept the whole night. And I'm staring at this bottle of pills on my counter. And this is the first time in my life I ever had this thought. This thought starts playing in repeat. Swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle, the whole thing. And I've only looked at a bottle of pills before as something that you take to fix you once a day. I'd never looked at it as a weapon, and now my Mm -hmm. brain is seeing it as a weapon. Now, now, Aaron, you asked what happened in my past. We're going to get to what happened in my past. But nothing in the two and a half years leading up to that instance with that bottle situationally had gone wrong. My dog was healthy. My parents were healthy. Didn't have a bad breakup. So how is that thought jumping in my mind? It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't a voice. It was a magnetic pull towards grabbing a bottle to the point where I was sitting on my hands, stopping myself from lunging. Like I had two different parts of my brain, one part going, swallow, swallow, swallow it. The other part going, the hell are you talking about? You don't want to do that. Where is that coming from? And that second part was the part that allowed me, since I was living with my parents at the time, to go, you got to take me to a hospital because I can't stop myself from these weird thoughts that are coming on my brain I'm thinking I'm an alien. No one else has had these thoughts before because they weren't being openly talked about. So I go inpatient. Okay. Here, here's back to Ivy League stuff. I go to Cornell Med, not because I was an alum, because that was I w- what I was told was the top treatment facility center. Skipping the intake and aw- awfulness of that. I, I meet with the attending psychiatrist. She's a Harvard trained doctor. Okay. She's got top doctor plaques on her wall. I sit in her office. She reads. Jared, all the drugs that you said you hadn't even heard of all of them. She yeah. reads a list. She reads a TMS therapy and she uses these two words with me, which changed my life in an awful way at the time, but for the better way in the long run. She said, Eric, you've tried everything there is. Your last resort. Those are the two words is to do ECT. Okay. So electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy, probably the thing that scares the shit out of the most of us in this space that we hear about that we see in one flew over the cuckoo's nest and Mm. and all those fun movies. And at the time, I, you 2017. Now you're not talking to anyone going, did you do ECT? What it was offered to you. Hey, Aaron, tell me about what your experience with it was like, didn't openly talk about those things. So this is a top doctor. She's telling me I need it. I'm going to go do it. So 12 sessions of getting my brain shocked into seizure. For those who don't know it, they put electrodes on your skull. They put a cuff, blood pressure cuff on your ankle. There's a propofol that's injected into you—the stuff that Michael Jackson overdosed on. That's the anesthetic that they use. They put a, a oxygen mask on you and a and a mouthpiece, mouth mouth guard in your mouth, and shock your brain into seizure under general anesthesia, hoping that that seizure is going to wake your brain up. Essentially, a hard restart of your computer. Wake up after each session. I have no fucking idea where I am. What's your name? I don't know. What state are you in? I don't know. They're making things worse, right? From what you guys know about the nervous system. And I'm, it's a little bit of a, of a tease. They're increasing my sympathetic nervous system response by fucking me up even more going, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this to test to see what the negative effect is? And I don't know any of the answers. And they end up wheeling me back to the ward floor that I'm on. I don't know what room I'm even in at this point. It takes me an hour after each session to normalize and to get back some semblance of cognitive abilities. All right. So I leave the hospital after um f- after 12 sessions, five weeks, um, feeling no better than I had the two and a half years prior, essentially thinking my life is over. This doctor told me last resort. I'm this thing called treatment resistant. From all of these labels that they threw at me, I'm done. So I mentioned my parents are. Former educators, father was a principal, mother was a language teacher. They go to these continuing education courses all the time. This is where the story turns. And now the buildup of learning the heal comes in. So they my mom had a pain in her neck and her back. So she goes to this course with my dad called integrative breathing practices. I had no idea what the fuck the term integrative meant. i never done a breathing practice before in my life. So not resonating with me. My mom is not hippity dippity in any way. Like she goes to, you know, traditional doctors and she comes back from this course and night. she's like, I don't know, like my neck just feels better. And I went up to this woman, Donna, she's a psychologist after the session and I asked her if she treats people. Now she asked Donna, do you treat people with depression and anxiety? Cause that's all they knew. That's the only label that she knew to explain it. And Donna said, well, actually, yeah, I'm a, I'm a mental health clinician, even though this helped with your, neck and back pain. I'd love to see your son. Please have him come see me. So I come and sit in their couch. This is now going to answer your initial question, Aaron. So I'm expecting the appointment to go like this. And and everyone who's been to a psychiatrist can relate to this. Three segments I'm expecting it to be. Aaron, nice to meet you. What are your symptoms? Segment one. Aaron, based on your symptoms, here's your diagnosis. Segment two. Aaron, based on your diagnosis, here's how we treat it. Segment three, right? So I thought it was going to be something like that, even though my mom told me she treated differently. It was nothing like that. She sits me on the couch. She goes, Eric, the couch is your stage. I'm your one person audience. We have an hour and a half together. I don't want to talk the whole time. I want you to talk. And I have one question for you. What's the story of your life? And then she just shuts up. Okay. So... Think about that for a second. We don't talk to each other that way in everyday language, like everyday conversation. You go, Aaron, what time is the podcast this morning? Shit, what time do we got to wake up? Is the audio working? What did you do yesterday? Did you go out last night? Okay. That's the way we don't talk big picture. And even when we talk big picture, it's like, have you met anyone recently? Right? It's, It's not, what's the story of your life? So this is where Aaron, now all of a sudden, I'm telling a story to her that I don't realize what I'm revealing over the next hour. I just am telling the story of my life. So you got some early stories of going on family trips as a young kid. Well, I get to age eight, middle of three boys, older brother's four years, my my senior, he breaks his femur bone in a football accident. So put into a body cast after traction for years in that body cast, homeschooled, shitting through a hole in the back, right? That's, that's basically what they had back then. It was like a body cast up to here. Heals from that month later gets diagnosed with ALL, children's form of leukemia. Late eighties, early nineties, people are calling people with cancer the big C, afraid to go near them in the hospital. The treatment protocols back then are not what they are now. It's five years to get the chemo and the radiation in that system to try and knock it out. And the prognosis is not the best. Like they're, they're preparing us for what might happen. So, you know, I'm a nine year old kid until a 14 year old kid thinking, My brother is basically on death's doorstep as I'm watching his hair fall out and him looking pale and awful. Well, a miracle. He heals. Goes into remission. Month later, he's in a Jeep Wrangler with his friends. Open top, no seatbelt, doing what kids do when they get their permit, driving erratically, car loses control. My brother flies out of the back, lands on his head, cracks his head open on the parkway, loses partial vision in his eye, is in ICU for a month. Heals from that. Goes to college, feeling a pain in his knee. Right at the end of college, they do all this testing. Same childhood cancers returned. Now that it's returned, they have to give him a stronger dose of the chemo, which fortunately, 10 years later, they've developed stronger doses, so the protocol is not as long, and is doing a great job that first year in lowering his white blood cell counts, which is what leukemia is when your white blood cells are too high, but unfortunately... His body's breaking down. So, yes, he's losing his hair, but you're seeing his joints break down, and he's hunched over, and he's having a difficult time walking. We switch places at this point because he's four years older than I am. He goes to law school while getting the chemo. I'm at Cornell, and I get a call from my dad who puts the social worker on. Eric, we got to prepare you for the worst. Your brother's got a 105 fever. We just took him to the hospital. You guys should drive down and come see him. So the whole drive, I'm like, what the fuck's going on with him? get there, my parents are meeting with the neurologist. The neurologist tell us his body's got into septic shock from the chemo treatments. Septic shock, he's got into a coma. The tube is breathing for him. As a family, we can make a decision to keep the tube breathing if we want, but they don't know if he's ever going to wake and if he does, if he's ever going to have any brain activity. So that goes on for three months. I'm going back and forth between school. My parents are living at the Ronald McDonald house, you know, staying by him miracle after three, three months, weeks, full cognitive faculties about him. Okay. But now all of a sudden, a week into that, he's starting to say crazy shit. They realize fluid has built up in his brain. They have to do a procedure to put a shunt in the brain permanently that drains a fluid out into his stomach. That's successful. We're celebrating again. A couple months later, his kidneys fail from the rigor of the septic shock. Has to go on dialysis. We all get tested to see who's the closest match. My father's donates a kidney to him. That's all successful. I get that first job at the NBA league office, 22 years old. 9 11 happens and then three of my close friends pass away back to back to back of either misdiagnosed or undiagnosed heart conditions. One guy running on a treadmill collapsing. I mean, for that shit to happen at 22 is just, you know, so rare and then to happen to three friends. So the woman. Aaron, hopefully that answers a good deal of your questions, eight to 22 years old. But this woman stops me, and this is, I'm sure we'll have some back and forth in this. This woman stops me at this point and says, Eric, I told you I wouldn't ask you any other questions, but we're an hour and 10 minutes into an hour and a half session. What else happened to you as a child and a young adult that impacted your mental health that I need to know about? And I just, I like, like that. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I'm 35, been laying in bed for two and a half years with a chemical imbalance waiting for chemicals to balance up my balance you asked me to tell you about my life I'm just telling you the story of what I, I I've been through in my life and and there were some highs there were some lows but that that's what I've been through I don't understand the connection that was 13 14 years ago and I think that's the common misunderstanding that most people have right like I was living through a trauma history that was long in nature that every time an ambulance went by as a little kid my brain's going, that ambulance is going to my house. Something tragic is going to happen when I get home. Every time when we finally got caller ID, even when it was like a young adult, once phones came out, oh shit, my parents are calling. What bad news are they delivering? What bad news are they delivering? My nervous system was wired to feel like a calamity was going to happen and I was on edge all the time. We don't teach that as a society. We don't explain that to people. So I was a ticking time bomb, all the way starting at eight years old she was fascinated that it was took me to, to being 35 for this crash to happen her analogy that she gave me then I'll then I'll shut up and and you guys can chime in here is she said Eric you had a front row seat if you had a front row seat for an NBA basketball game when you were an executive and these seven foot athletes sweat as they run by you and the sweat flew off them and hit you your suit would get sweaty you'd go home that night take a shower put the suit away for the dry cleaner put a nice new suit on the next day Your front row seat was for the game of life, and the game of life was represented by a muddy wrestling ring your brother was in and a muddy wrestling ring your friends were in. And every move they were making to wrestle the game of life, the mud was splattering and hitting you and splattering and hitting you. You were so focused on the jumbotron and the LED lights and the fans in the arena, Aaron, accomplishments, okay, that... You didn't notice the mud splattering off of that fight. You knew the fight was in front of you, but you didn't notice the mud. The mud was hitting you like the sweat would have been from the NBA players. And the mud got so heavy, not after three hours like an NBA game, three days, three weeks, three months, three years, 30 years. For 35 years, that mud's been taking up. And eventually, it got so heavy that you literally fell off the chair when you were in Florida. Welcome to my office.
2: So good so, first oh, session that Yeah, that was it. So you guys, you guys figured it out and then you
0: just went on.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Doc. I, wish, I, wish, I wish that was the case, man. I wish it was that quick.
0: Yeah. <laughs> gosh, man. That's, that is terrible. One that all that stuff happened. That's a, uh, a string of events that is, um, man, that's rough.
1: Jeez. But, it, but, but, you know, Jared, the thing is that I appreciate you saying that one, One, there's no way to compare emotional pain from one person to the next and what you've been through, right? So for anyone out there who's been on an airplane at three years old and had terrible turbulence and their parents were like, oh, it's fine. They were reading a newspaper and they weren't freaking out. And in your little three-year-old brain, you're like, oh my God, we're all the way up in the air. I don't know what 30,000 feet is, but this thing could fall at any moment. And now you're seeing an airplane every day in the sky for the next 30 years and you've never gone to therapy, never talked about it, never done something called EMDR or whatever. And now you're like, your brain is going, that could fall, that could fall, that could fall on someone's house. That could be as traumatic as all the different events that I just described. It's just how our brain notices and processes things. And we don't appreciate that because we go, well, that guy, Aaron, that guy, Jared, hasn't been through much as Eric or Eric hasn't been through as much as, you know, Kevin Love has been through or whatever it is. And we do comparisons like we do on social media.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Social media is, is uh, trying to help people understand that social media, especially young people, that social media is not real. It's not real life. It is curated to, you know, with with the amount of filters, with the amount of, hey, it, you're only seeing a, a frame of what this this reel that we call life or that reel that, you know, that film that is that event. Um, that's it. You're only seeing what I want to show you. So, yeah, because I tell you what, if you look at our our uh, social media pages and, you know, most of it is now just kind of podcast stuff. But like when we were posting pictures, yeah, you're seeing all, all the cool stuff. You're not seeing the the level of mission planning and, and yeah. admin work that goes into that event, like because that would not be interesting. So
1: <laughs> um, well, in in the same respect, though, Aaron, so you're talking about the highlights in comparison of the highlights. What has social media rewarded in the space of mental health? Victimhood. Mm -hmm. I'm so-and-so the bipolar warrior. I'm so-and-so the ADHD addict, right? Like I'm using ridiculous terms, but because if you're able to talk about how awful your life is, your life is interesting to certain people. Those people go, that's what I have and I can relate to. And then here's the key to social media let me post something that makes it an us and them topic, where I can say those people did this to me. Right in my case, my story could have been my awful parents for not taking me to therapy at a young age and not realizing these things were impacting me the way we we're. My brother. Bullshit. My yeah. parents were doing the best they could at taking me to every fucking practice they could. They didn't know what the hell therapy was back then. But what we've made is a society of victims where it's. Who can I blame for the fact that I feel like shit and that I didn't get the treatment that I needed? So fine, I'm going to follow this person who tells me that I can blame someone else and, and reshare their meme or their Instagram story that my brother and sister and my parents are following me so they'll indirectly see it and know that this is a shot across the bow at them. It's, it's part of this separation society that we live in that's
0: destroying us. It, what, so, and maybe that rolls right into why, like, I like, like, I, these podcasts, yes, yeah, we do it for, you know, the the dem- demographic that we have that want to be, come in and be Air Force Special Warfare and stuff like that. But it's, it's probably more rewarding for me, Aaron and Trent, than, and the folks that we have on. And we've, we've heard this, for, and I don't know how you'll feel <laughs> after this, Eric, but, you know, um, like we get a lot of our our own bros that come on and and talk to us, and they're like, "Dude, that was that was awesome. That was almost like very, uh, you know, therapeutic. Not the cathartic, yeah, yeah, just it's, to be able
2: to just, tell their story and, and right. talk about it.
0: And it's like, dude, okay, surrounding yourself with like minded people from from or even outside of your own community, and just kind of bullshitting. Like it's, well, it's just I, good. what
1: you guys are doing is what society needs right like I've 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 looked obviously before you guys invited me on and and congratulated you guys on the on the audience that you've built. You've built that audience because you're creating I hate using industry terms, a safe space, right? So let's just call it you're creating a forum to normalize that people go through fucked up things and now I'll use my language in it because it was our initial name of our organization, we're all a little crazy. And not just a little crazy sometimes, a lot crazy sometimes. There's not a fucking person on this planet who hasn't been through shit. And the problem is the way that it has been explained to us for so long. It's the reason why I got in this space after I went through what I went through. I know we didn't go through the healing piece of it. We don't need to. But the reason I got in this space is I, I wanted to go back in sports, right? I spent my whole life work, and I was like, find me an organization that's talking about mental health in the way that I just experienced it. That it's not about labels, that it's not about disorder, that it's not about chemical imbalances, that it's not about finding your DSM five, that it's about going through shit, and that that impacts the nervous system, and that you need to do modalities to heal the nervous system. Find me that organization. I've got sports contacts. I will give them my sports contacts and I'll go back being the selfish guy working in sports. Okay, I went to the largest nonprofits and for profits in this country. Okay, and I saw three things. That were the same on all these websites that you think consistency is good in this space. It should be if the consistency was giving us the right message. Now, riddle me this as I tell you those three things. How do we have the greatest awareness in the history of our planet of mental health with more athletes and entertainers speaking up than ever, yet the numbers are the worst they've ever been? That means you have a messaging issue. Okay. I'm not saying there aren't other factors like we had the pandemic and all that. But you have a messaging issue. And here's the messaging issue. First is, they all start with the statistic one in five people are mentally ill. Guess what that's telling everyone? Aaron's fucked up and his four friends aren't. Aaron, sorry, we're going to be nice to you, okay? But the rest of us, we're these four things, healthy, fine, normal, and okay. We don't got to worry about it. So we've created a binary topic of there's a group of affected people and there's a group of people aren't affected. How many times have we heard the story? Not them. You never would have thought that's because we're creating reactive group of people that do nothing that helps the pharmaceutical industry. Because when you do nothing, eventually you become part of the one in five group and you believe you need the thing that they're selling. Okay. So that's issue. Number one, issue number two, all the campaigns are an action word followed by stigma. Stop the stigma, stop the stigma, break the stigma, rate the stigma being from sports, strike out the stigma, slap the stigma, kick the stigma. Okay. The, think about how ridiculous this is. I mean, like sometimes takes a second to think deeply about this, but the term stigma means human beings are forming unfair opinions and judgments about other human beings, not my computer, not a, not, not an inanimate object. So if I say stop or stomp the stigma and Aaron and I are part of the one in five group who are advocates and our family members are advocates and screaming it out. What we're saying is you motherfuckers over there who are healthy. You're not being nice to us. Stop doing what you're doing. Does right. that work in politics and social issues and anything? No. It's that's setting up a false binary. You yeah,
2: you're setting up an adverse, like at the, the time that you need support and it, to like actually like be inclusive and see things in other people that normalize how you're feeling. We're literally setting up a binary or an adversarial relationship.
1: You You nailed it. And it's like. How do, how are we not? And the only reason we're not realizing is because people are so frustrated that they want to vent how they feel. So they're like, stop the stigma, break the stigma. And they don't realize what it's doing to pull that other group, which is the majority of society away going, that's not me. I'm not doing that to you. Don't be pointing fingers at me. Okay. That's number two. Number three, I I tease it a little bit with the Kevin Love thing. The way that celebrity stories are shared are Britney Spears, she's part of the one in five group. She's got depression. Lindsay Lohan, she's part of the, you're not alone. Celebrities go through it too. She's part of the one in five. She's got anxiety. Then they leaked to the Us Weekly and People Magazine article. Britney Spears has depression, shaves her head. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety, dresses like a hot mess. Now add these three things up that are the billboards on all of the messaging around mental health. It's for one in five people. Stop stigmatizing that poor group of one in five. And if you want to know if you're in the one in five with Aaron and Eric, do you shave your head? Do you run off basketball courts and panic attacks like Kevin Love? Do you say crazy things about your family, anti-Semitic things and think you can run for president like Kanye West? Great news. You're part of the one in five group. Let's get you to join hands with us. That's why we have a society that still doesn't fucking understand this thing. And that was the reason behind forming same Here. Was you and I were the same. When you guys are having the conversations, Aaron and Jared, with these people, that's just, without you using my terminology, our organization's terminology, you're saying that to them. You're going, I didn't have the exact same story with you, but I'm shaking my head and agreeing with you and saying I can relate because I've experienced something similar. The only way we're able to normalize that is through conversations and storytelling. And we're still at a place right now, sadly, in society where when Kevin loves only reveal is anxiety. And Michael Phelps's depression and Simone Biles on the biggest stage, even though she was raped by Larry Nassar, and that should have been the lead part of the story, it was she's got depression and depression stops her from being able to compete and she's right. a quitter. That doesn't normalize conversation that doubles down on the existing erroneous message that there's an affected group and an unaffected group. We don't change that without this narrative becoming storytelling about what happened to you and what... So, Aaron, it all ties back to your question, which is why your brain went there.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and give myself a pat on the back. I did it. <laughs> I crush it. I won the podcast game today. Well, the, <laughs> the other thing that you're, you know, that's really resonating with me too is, you know, when you say "same here," it's getting not just it's not focused on those one. Like it's not this inclusive thing where it's like you have these issues and I have that issue. Just like you grew up and you had no idea your brain just shut off. Those other people need to go, okay, wait a second. No, I do have a lot of things in common with this out group, with the one in five individual, and we all operate and feel these things on a spectrum. And I don't know how many times, like, you know, I can tell by Jared's face because I look at Jared's face a lot, but, you know, he and I are sitting here like, "You, you don't have combat trauma. You don't know what it's like to be deployed and to work with those things, but I don't know what it's like to work in your space with the high institutional pressure either. I don't know what that is. But I know what that is. I know what that feeling is. I know what that description of how you felt is. I know how you feel like you had to deal with these things and feeling lost and feeling, you know, upset and feeling okay in certain parts of your life, but completely, you know, destroyed in other parts of it. Like that, that reciprocity there helps to break down that division between the 20% and the other 80% as well.
1: You you nailed, I'm so like, one of the reasons why I love working with military is I grew up, like I think most people did, your parents take you to a bagel store and there's a person with a VFW hat on sitting at the table by themselves, eating by themselves. And you'd say to your parents, families are eating together, people are together. Why is that guy always by himself? Why is that gal always by, by herself? And this is the the answer it always gets. They fought a war that no one else can understand, Right. And it was, then they went to the VFW building or, or the, the, you know, the, the, whatever the building was that was there for the veteran group, right? Uh, in their area. And it broke my heart because I was like, why do they have to sit by themselves? Now at a young age, I'm not processing the commonality of this thing called trauma. And then the more I realized and the more I went through myself and I was like, holy shit, the mom who loses her son at 12 years old has fought a war that they might say, well, no one can understand only people who've got that bucketed way of looking at life and life experiences separates us. So, and I hope this isn't derogatory towards the military. I don't believe it is because I use it with them when I, when I present and I do when I'm coming to go to Nellis, but you in the military, you might not have a family member or a close friend who's been in the military also. Why are we limiting who you can find comfort in and camaraderie with because that person hasn't had the exact same experience as you in terms of the source of where the trauma came from? That mom who lost a 12-year-old son, fought her own type of war, understands what emotional pain feels like, and that should be the common thread that ties us together where that mom can go over to that service person or that service person go over to that mom and go, I don't know exactly but I know enough and listen, I'm all ears and I'm here to support you. That's the concept, the same here that there's not a person in Aaron, like as you, you heard my story, even though there was details to it, the, the, the macro pieces of it, organ transplant, cancer, sickness of a, of a brother, loss of a friend, right? Uh coma. I'm not getting into the intricacies. I'm talking about the big picture stuff. Find me a person who can't relate to divorce, job loss, breakup, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, bullying, cyberbullying, sickness, of love, and loss of love. Like that's what our life is. It's a series no, of downs. It's and the down human experience. To yeah. Yeah. And we don't, we don't acknowledge that. We don't, we're like, oh, I don't have it. So, so we can't talk about that stuff.
0: But how do we right. break out of those bucketed categories then? Like you, 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 you know?
1: have to do storytelling, Jared. You because, and you have to do storytelling in a way that's educational and. As an organization, I mentioned some of those other organizations, mm-hmm. Calm and Headspace are, are more in the for-profit space. They started off w- with a great message. Andy Pudicombe, he's a Buddhist monk. He's going to teach the world how to meditate. Then the venture capitalists came in and said, we need a 5X return, a 10X return. And all of a sudden, their messages became, get 10% happier in 10 days guaranteed. Uh, That's yeah, I rem- selling I the that. and 5. Mm-hmm. You're telling the yeah. sick people they're sick. So yeah. to answer your question, Jared, The only way to change this is edu-sales, right? You need nonprofit and for-profit organizations that need to generate revenue, podcasts like yours that hopefully are trying to gain audience at a certain point. I know you do this out of the goodness of your heart, but that you could eventually keep it going and growing it. That not only tell the story, but in telling the story, explain some of the science behind it. Explain what polyvagal science is. Aaron, dive into what the what you call a spectrum, I call a continuum is, and how there's a balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system response, and how the sympathetic response jumps in and becomes dominant. And that's why your brain freezes and breaks, just like a computer does when there's too many windows open on it and it gets overwhelmed. That's what happens to our central nervous system. If we teach that understanding of mental health, then it doesn't matter that our experiences are different. What matters is that how we go through that continuum is similar and we're able to relate on that. That's what creates commonality and brings us all together.
0: It's not an easy, like it's, I think once you have that realization and you, and you have a way forward, it's kind of like, okay, well, yeah, obviously, but people, because people are so ingrained in the social media or so. Of course. Um, they're in that deep rut of uh, whether it's victimhood or that compartmentalization or or that hey that us versus them you know like it's 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 gonna be tough to to change folks and I and I think it's unrealistic we'll change everybody but I mean you know not, if, you you can, ever, if
1: there's three rivers to everything right there's the gung ho people who get what you're doing there's the people in the middle who go it kind of makes sense prove it to me and then there's people go never not me i'm not going to change right we're trying to get more people in river one we're trying to get people from river two to go into river one and go oh i get what they're saying there right and be open to it and the river threes may never change okay but we're trying to shake their foundation enough to at least hey why are there more and more people moving from river two to river three The only way I know, because it's the space I was in, Jared, is get athletes, get entertainers to not share their labels, but to share what they've been through. Theo Fleury, NHL hockey player, raped over 150 times at 15 years old by his male coach. Plays 15 years in the NHL, one of the greatest players of all time, scored over a 1,000 points. He's got a gun rattling between his teeth about to blow his head off right around retirement age. That's the reason that happens is because he had no coping mechanisms, didn't know what mental health was. And all that shit is building in a system that he didn't tell anyone about from the age 15 on. That's a story that relates to people that educates them, that gets them to go. I didn't, I wasn't raped, but what did happen to me at 15 years old? What was I suppressing? What drugs and alcohol and sex and gambling and shopping and eating that I do that stopped me from healing and actually getting to the source? So you're right. It's going to be a long change, but 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 look at it this way. Jane Fonda and Richard Simmons, okay, got in leg warmers in one case, and then short, way too short shorts with curly hair, and jumped on stage and did sweating to the oldies in the in the 70s and 80s to convince people that working out was not just for Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they edu sold people into this idea that we need to work out. So that we don't have this thing called a heart attack when we get older, right? And, and we don't get, get diabetes with terrible blood sugar. I'm not saying America is perfect to your point. There's people who are morbidly obese in America that don't get that message, but we've educated a lot of people to where there's a gym on every corner right now. We're at with mental health. This, this may be a drastic, uh, uh, take on it, but I believe it. We're at in mental health where we were with physical health in the 1960s. Okay. We're 60 some odd years be, be, uh, uh, behind where physical health is because there is no mental health gym on every corner. No. There are no athletes and entertainers and people, public figures who are getting up on stage and going, this is how I do yoga, EMDR, Havening, tapping, okay, TRE. Okay. Th- th- that's not mainstream right now. So if that happened in the 60s, 70s, that means we have to get to that place with these groups. My tact to do it is partner with professional sports teams who help us get on platforms, partner with athletes who help us get the the word out there. I don't see another way. I'm not going to have billions of dollars to spend against the messages that's about bucketing. I'm not going to have a social media that's 15 million people overnight that's going to change it. So I have to rely on holding hands with these other people and organizations to do it. And
2: you guys can go check this out. This is samehereglobal.org to get a little look behind the curtain about exactly what Eric's talked about. You can find them everywhere on socials. It's here underscore global. So you can find it there. And I'll make sure to put this in, in the description and stuff, but... You know, just going through over at SameHereGlobal.org and looking at what you guys are doing, it all started off with, you know, we're all a little crazy here, which, by the way, I love it. Uh, our, one of our career field mottos is, you know, no kidding, as PJs, we have the Cheshire Cat, right? Like, we're all <laughs> a little mad here. We, we materialize out of nowhere, and, you know, you're just left with a smile and a, and a whisper of, a, of somebody that was there. Like, we, we connect with that. Um, it's one of our, our career field, you know, symbols. Um but, you know, looking at, looking at samehereglobal.org and looking at all of the things from the holistic viewpoint, we talk about putting on your mental armor, right? Like when you go to Nellis and when y- you talk to folks, this is going to resonate with the military community. You know, you don't put your body armor on after you get shot. You put your body armor on to go to work. You have to get yourself prepared. Like there are things that we do from physical fitness to nutrition to training to, you know, tactical uh, expertise that you need prior to the event and if you don't have it prior to the event it's going to happen exactly what you did you know you essentially had an id go off in your brain of unresolved trauma of a thing that led up to you and it, it cost you you know two years of your life plus all of the the steps that you've made to get where you are now um as you think through same here global and as you think through just the project in general of getting people together where do you see it going next with your web of? influencers and celebrities and, and getting some of those things. Like if you, if you had one thing that you could put out there to say, all right, listen, y'all don't know about me, you know, maybe it is, you know, EMR, maybe it is tapping, maybe it is some sort of mindful practice, uh, like yoga or meditation. What, where is same, same here global, where are you guys pushing, um, you know, the main focus of your effort?
1: So I was never an entrepreneur before this, right? I worked in sports. I had to help the, the, the real entrepreneurs who are making billions, you know, uh, uh, help them generate more revenue. So I appreciate Aaron, you asking that question because it gives us an opportunity that being in this space, I first started off by creating programming. Okay. Well, so I go to Nellis and then I go to the LA Clippers and then I go to a K through 12, right? So five different areas of focus, but to scale that in an educational way is really difficult. So mm-hmm. that's why I love that you brought up spectrum. We created an app it's continuing to be developed I've put my own money into it because I won't take the institutional money. It's called Same Here Scale. What is it meant to do? To teach people polyvagal science in a very simplistic way, six emojis that have thoughts, feelings, and behaviors underneath it, where is my state of mind at any given moment? Thriving, gliding, surviving, fluctuating, struggling, sinking, so that I can understand that my nervous system shifts and I can track it over time. And I can track it related to what's going on in my life, what mind-body sensations am I having, and then what exercises am I doing about it? So that second piece besides the scale, the same here scale, is something that we call STAR. So when you're talking about EMDR, tapping and havening, I was just the dummy who I got sick at the right time, I guess, that I called up the inventors of ACT therapy, David Berselli from TRE, Right. Laney Rosenzweig from ART Therapy, and I said, has anyone ever marketed you together under one umbrella as a gym for the brain? So STAR stands for Stress and Trauma, Active Release and Rewiring, a gym for the brain. So our model is through a scalable way, no pun intended, for people to learn how to measure the fluctuations in their nervous system, that that's what mental health is, and to understand the activities and the exercises that you do To get yourself what on our scale is back to the left on the scale where that sympathetic response or in my case, that freeze response is not so locked in and you're getting greater psychological flexibility. If we teach everyone that, that simplistic piece, which I know is not as simplistic as I just described it because it is a big paradigm shift versus what they know, what you're giving people is agency and hope. Because right now on the common understanding that we have, I have depression or PTSD. And I have it, and I'm going to have it for the rest of my life, and I just have to manage it. That's not a hopeful message. That's a, I'm fucked. At least give me something that lets me get through it. And we're saying, no, you're not an obese person in your brain for the rest of your life. You can work out your brain, lose weight, and feel better. Let's figure out how to do that.
2: Crushed it. Damn, we we just solved it. We fixed mental health. Gym for the brain. You figured it out.
0: I'm sitting here going, like, I've taken notes. I'm like, ooh, I need to make that into an uh, Instagram reel. I'm sitting here taking <laughs> time stamps, like uh, to try to figure out what, you know, it, you, you rattled off um, a star so, so quickly. I'm sitting here going, like, oh, crap, i got to get that.
1: <laughs> it's, I mean, the good thing is it's – I mean, if, you, if I appreciate, obviously, the comment, but it's on that main page of the website that Aaron was talking about. And to get, you know, like, Chucky Akobe e. is a uh, Super Bowl champion. Not a huge name offensive lineman most people would know him but to see this huge dude with the ring on his finger going you've tried everything and your everything is talk therapy and medication and he goes do you have you tried the things you don't know and he's like it's a rhetorical question he's like of course you haven't because you don't know them and he's like that's why you got to be open to these things because if what you tried before hasn't worked let's try something else that's that's the formula there but we go back to the well and i'm I'm guilty of it you heard my story what's the next med? what's the next bed what's the next med? Yeah. because that's what we're told to believe so
0: man dude we could easily go for another three hours <laughs> I, know. I know
1: i feel bad that I, I hope i hope for the audience i mean i spoke a ton and i know you guys love you know chiming in so i hope i didn't commandeer too much of the conversation right, you didn't, anyway. you didn't
0: bogart the conversation at, at all. This education for me, uh, it, it's at least for me, I'll, I'll say for me, uh, just because like, I, it's not something that I've, uh, I guess been fortunate enough to struggle with. I, i don't yeah you know, sure i have trauma in my life but not not to the extent that you guys uh or at least you do aaron. what did
2: we just say what do we, ju- we just we just talked a whole hour pieces about not putting I, yourself well, into I'm, that you're comparing trauma
1: what, did you
0: listen to aaron No, it's not
1: <laughs> i was it. i was gonna wait aaron i was gonna wait <laughs> not because me, because baby. because hey, look like i i, I know I, i'm we're going long here but i'll, I'll just say this aaron like Take the loss of a family member. I just lost my grandmother last week at 101, okay? And, and it was crushing to me. And most people would probably be like, she was 101. Like, she lived an amazing life. Celebrate that. I don't want to be like, go fuck yourself. Like, yeah. I was used to her being in my life. <laughs> right. And yeah. she was like a spunky, you know, quick-witted woman who like, then just there was a quick decline at the end where we had to put her in hospice. Like, it sucks to miss her. Yeah. Different families deal with loss in different ways my family only because i guess their their nature they go it's the end of the world when someone dies it's it's awful now you have other families that do celebrate oh my god even if they only live 50 years they've made an amazing impact the way we, our family deals with loss is one example and everyone deals with loss is going to change whether or not what you're saying you haven't been through as much as what Aaron and i have we don't know that because everyone's experience what we go through is different
0: Right. And I just handle it differently. Yeah. Yeah. So now yeah, that's valid. I just, you know, me, I just, uh, it's probably a compartmentalization and I, I put a lot into fitness. Like that's like, I just go crush myself and, <laughs> and I like doing hard things. That and servitude. Like I just want to serve and that, that helps me out with whatever it is. So. so
1: you rec- You recognize those things as therapy, right? Those two things that you just described.
0: Well, and I I enjoy them. Sure, sure. I yeah, I could I could you know put a boner on. I him. only
1: say that because what I didn't do from eight to thirty five, what Aaron probably didn't do as I didn't get into his story as much. You know when 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 shit hit the fan with him, you've learned positive coping mechanisms. You yes. probably haven't had positive coping mechanisms your whole life, right? Like. There's been some shit that you've done that probably suppress and repress some of the things that you've been through. Sure. But you've learned a pattern now that is helpful for you. And that's awesome. So when you say I haven't, it's just you have, you haven't felt that you believe to the degree that the rest of us have, but you can absolutely relate to what we're saying because you felt pieces of it. And if you yes. felt pieces of it, it's the same thing as going, I've only had a 99 fever and you've had a 101 fever. Sorry, I can't I don't know what hundred and one fever is. Can't relate. Is. You know what a fever <laughs> can't is.
0: Can't relate, homie. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> well, cool. Eric, really appreciate you joining us. Um everybody out there, make sure you check out samehereglobal.org. Um and then if you happen to be listening to this and you're on Nellis, um when are you when are you hitting Nellis? I know it's in August. Okay, so I believe, yeah, so it's, I believe
1: it's the 15th and 16th or 16th and 17th. Don't, don't, don't quote me there. We're, we're, we're we're meeting with the first sergeants, right? And then we're, we're, we're meeting with the rest of the base afterwards. And it's going to go beyond just storytelling. We're going to be doing workshopping in terms of opening up around vulnerability. We're going to be learning more about the scale and the science behind the, the, the nervous system. So I'm excited to come down there because to, to the USO's credit, they really invested in it and want to make sure that there's a good amount of education that's brought to the base. I know that I hope I'm not bringing up something that's, that's too negative, but I heard that there were eight suicides within the last year on the base. And, and am I, am I saying something that's, I I don't
0: know. No, no, no. I don't, I don't know what the actual number is, but I know that we have dealt with a lot of suicidal ideations uh, a lot, which is one of the reasons why, like, so, so the, my first sergeant at my organization is the one that, told me about you and and then he sent it out to everybody. And then that's when I was like, well, let me check this out, you know, because, um, Nellis alone. And, and that's, that's when we talk about Nellis, we're talking about one base with, uh, I think we have, I don't know how many people we have on here. I think about 9,000 people.
2: I was going to say it's under 10,000, a couple thousand people.
0: Yeah. Um, and that's not including the massive retired community here in Las Vegas. Um, you know, we've got a whole nother base just right up the road. Um, and then you talk about the, the 360, I think, 340,000 airmen. Airmen doesn't include Marines, soldiers, um, sailors, you know, Coasties, Space Force, Guardians. And then all the retirees that go with that. You know, it's just, uh, it's wild. It's an it's a overwhelming number. So who knows how many are dealing with stuff just on the military side of the house yeah so no again appreciate it and uh, hopefully I, I travel a lot so hopefully i'm in town when you're here i'll, I'll have to poke my head in and shake your hand so yes love to all right everybody uh appreciate you joining don't forget to like subscribe hit that notification bell and then leave us a review we're out here